Well, good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you all for having me. You know, this, uh, this lecture is about as much about communication as it is anything else. And so I'm going to use two extremes to demonstrate the power of, uh, of dialogue and the necessity for communication. So to give you a little bit of background as to how I got involved in this in the first place, let me, um, let me go way back. I'm 59 years old right now. And uh, let's go back to 1968 when I was age 10. We had just moved to a place called Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, sort of like maybe Rockville to Washington, D.C. or something. And uh, I was one of two black kids in the entire school. I was in the fourth grade, and there was a little black girl in the second grade. Everyone else was white. And so consequently, most of my friends uh, were white, and they were mostly fourth and fifth graders. So a lot of my guy friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join, so I joined. And we had a, a march, a parade, along with the Girl Scouts, Brownies, and Boy Scouts, and 4-H Club, and some other organizations from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, to, to uh, commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. And the streets were blocked off. Uh, both sides, sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people. And I was the only black, black scout, only black person uh, participating in this, uh, in this parade. Now, somewhere down the parade route, my den mother had let me carry the American flag. So I'm marching with my fellow scouts. And somewhere down this parade route, off to my right, I began getting hit with uh, bottles and soda pop cans and rocks and uh, debris from the street by a small group of white spectators mixed in with the, the larger overall crowd. They all were standing together. I don't remember exactly how many there were, but I would say maybe four or five. And I do remember a couple kids and a couple adults throwing things. And me being naive as to what was happening, my first thought was, oh, those people over there don't like the scouts. I did not realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my den mother, my pack leader, troop leader, different scout leaders came rushing back in the line and huddled over me with their bodies and escorted me out of the danger. And it was then that I realized nobody else was being targeted but me. So I kept asking them, well, why? Why are they hitting me? And all they would say is, shh, move along, Daryl. Hurt, move along, move along. It'll be okay. They never answered my question. So at age 10, of course, you know that if you have a question, you have to have answers. And if answers are not forthcoming, you begin to make them up in order to placate your own curiosity. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's because I'm the new kid on the block. Uh, you know, they're just testing me out. I had every excuse but the right excuse. So when I got home that day, my mom and dad, who were not at the parade, were fixing me up. You remember that, that red sticky stuff called mercurochrome? It doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But anyway, they were putting that on me and Band-Aids and uh, asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them I did not fall down. I told them exactly what happened. And for the first time in my life, my mom and dad sat me down and explained to me what racism was. 
believe it or not, at the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no idea what they were talking about. And when my mom and dad told me why I was being targeted this way, I literally did not believe them. I thought they were lying to me. Now, I didn't have big brothers and sisters to, uh, to learn from. You know, I was an only child. You know, my, my parents got it right the first time around. So, <laughs> um, I always relied on my mom and dad. You know, if I had a problem, they solved it for me, or they gave me the tools by which I could solve it myself. If I had a question, they answered it or gave me the tools by which I could derive the answer. My mom and dad had never lied to me. But on this day in 1968, I just knew they were lying because I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who had never laid eyes on me, someone who knew absolutely nothing about me would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than this, the color of my skin. It made no sense. And those white people that were doing this to me did not look any different to me than my white friends at school or their parents who treated me rather well. So it made no sense. So there had to be some other reason. And I just could not figure it out. Well, consequently, I did not believe them at all. Well, a little less than a month and a half later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And that night, I remember it very well, and that night, nearby Boston burned to the ground, as did Washington, D.C., Baltimore, my hometown, Chicago, Illinois, New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, Philadelphia, you know, all the major cities with rioting, burning, looting, violence, and it was then that I realized my parents had told me the truth, that there are people on both sides who have an issue with race. I still did not know why this was true, but I realized that now it was true. So I formed a question in my mind at the age of 10, and that question was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 49 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, uh, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, anybody and everybody who had the idea or ideology that their skin color gave them superiority over someone of another color. I want to learn where did that ideology come from, where is it going, how can it be addressed? because I knew that people were not born thinking that. It came from somewhere. So I was unable, I've read all these books, I have a vast collection of them, and I was unable to ascertain the answer to my question of how can you hate me when you don't even know me. So now let's skip ahead a little bit. I graduated high school in Rockville, Maryland. I still have that question in my mind. And I went to Howard University here in uh, Washington, D.C. I got my degree in music. I make a living today as a professional musician, touring all over this country and, and around the world and things like that. I had the pleasure of, uh, of playing piano for 32 years 
on and off for the man who invented uh, rock and roll. Without him, there would be no rock and roll. There would be no Elvis Presley, Beatles, Rolling Stones, or anybody else. His name was Charles Edward Anderson Berry, better known to most of you as Chuck Berry. And um, he passed away this year back in March, as did another father of rock and roll who passed away the uh, couple days ago, Mr. Fats Domino. And um, even though music became my profession, studying race relations became my obsession. So lo and behold, one day, uh, I graduated 1980. 1983, there was a resurgence of country music in, in, our, in our country. Um, there had been a movie out called Urban Cowboy with John Travolta and this mechanical bull and all this line dancing. So it, it became very popular. A lot of bars and clubs and places, places where you play music had switched over from top 40 to country. So if you wanted to play music full time, you played country. And I like country music. Blues and country music are kissing cousins. They, they use the exact same three chords. So, well, it's true. It's true. The DNA is the same. So I joined this country band, and I was the only black guy in the band, and consequently, the only uh, black guy in most of the places where we played. So one night, we were playing at a place up in Frederick, Maryland, called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And it was located in the bottom of the truck stop motel. There was a truck stop in Frederick at the convergence of uh, 270 and I-70, right there. A big truck plaza with an all-night restaurant, a motel, the lounge in the bottom, a, a truck mechanic bay, and all that kind of stuff. Today, it's gone. Uh, a Costco sits there now. So the Silver Dollar Lounge was an all-white lounge. And when I say all white, I don't mean that black people could not go in there. What I mean is that black people did not go in there, and that was a good choice, because they were not welcome. Well, here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge. And uh, we had just finished the first set, taking a break. I came off the bandstand. I'm going to walk over here and sit down at a table with my bandmates. And uh, this white gentleman comes across the dance floor and puts his arm around my shoulder. And I turned around to see who was touching me. And he, you know, this guy's maybe in his mid to late 40s. And um, he says, I really enjoy your all's music. I said, thank you. I shook his hand. He says, you know, pointing at the bandstand, he says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? Well, I explained to the guy, yes, he probably did see the band before because they had played here before many times before I joined them, but this was my first time you know, here um, playing in this place. I had just joined them, you know, recently. And he says, well, man, I really like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I wasn't offended, but I was kind of surprised that this guy, as old as he was, uh, did not know the origin of Jerry Lee's style of playing. And I, I wasn't trying to be facetious or be smart with him. But I just innocently asked him, I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee learned how to play? And he says, what are you talking about? I said, Jerry Lee Lewis learned that style from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rock and roll, rockabilly 
type of piano came from. Oh, no, 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 no. J Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never heard no black man play piano like that except for you. So I'm thinking of the guy, I'm thinking, you know, this guy has never heard Little Richard or Fast Domino or somebody, and he thinks that Jerry Lee invented this. Well, we argued back and forth. I told the man, look, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis is a very good friend of mine, and he's told me himself where he learned how to play. Well, the guy did not buy it. He didn't buy that, uh, that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. He didn't buy that I knew Jerry Lee. But I'll show you this uh, first picture of, uh, oh, there he is. There's, there's a young Daryl Davis and a young Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I've known Jerry Lee Lewis for a long time, known since I was like 14 years old. Here's a little bit more of a more recent picture here. There you go. Jerry Lee and uh, Billy Joel and myself. So at any rate, the guy didn't buy it. But he was fascinated with me and wanted to buy me a drink. I don't drink, but I agreed to go back to his table and have a cranberry juice. So I go back there, he had a buddy sitting with him. He pulled his chair around and sat next to his friend, and I sat across from them. He got the waitress, ordered my cranberry juice, paid her, and then he takes his glass and he clinks my glass and cheers me and says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Well, first thing that occurs to me is this gentleman is, is really having a night of firsts. And I, I could not understand how it was that in my 25 years on the face of this earth, I was 25 and 83, I had sat down literally with thousands of white people or anybody else and had a meal, a conversation, a beverage. This guy was in his 40s. He'd never sat down with a black guy before. How is that? You know, and because I know that there are black people in Frederick, Maryland. I know that for a fact because I've seen them. So <laughs> how is it that he somehow missed them in 40 years? And I, I asked him, I said, why? And at first he did not answer me. He stared down at the tabletop. And I asked him again, I said, why? And his buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me. You know, I want to know what the secret was. He looked back at me just as plain as day, and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing. <laughs> I really did. Because I have read every book on the Klan. And in none of my books does it talk about how a Klansman will come up and embrace a black guy, praise his piano playing, want to buy him a drink and hang out with him. It doesn't work that way. So I figured in my mind, this guy thought I was jerking him around about Jerry Lee Lewis, so he's going to jerk me around about being a KKK member. So I'm laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his Klan card. I look at this thing, whoa. This thing is for real, you know? So I stopped laughing. Well, I recognized the Ku Klux Klan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center. And I realized, you know, this guy wasn't, you know, wasn't kidding. So I gave him back his card, and we talked about the Klan and some other things, but he gave me his phone number and wanted me to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar with this band, because he wanted to bring his friends, you know, his, his friends, to, 
to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee. And uh, I told him I'd call him, and I would call him every six weeks. We were on a rotation with other bands. You know, I'd call him on a Wednesday or Thursday and say, hey man, you know, we're gonna be down at the Silver Dollar Friday and Saturday, come on out. He'd come. He would bring Klansmen and Klanswomen to, you know, to see me play, and they'd gather around the bandstand and watch me play and get out there on the dance floor and, and, and dance to our music. You know, they, they didn't come in robes and hoods. You know, they came in regular clothes. And on the break, usually I would go over to his table. Some of them would hang there because they were curious about me and wanted to meet me. Others would see me coming and they'd scurry away and get you know, put distance between us and just kind of like, you know, watch me from afar. They didn't want anything to do with me, which was fine. So this went on until the end of 1983, at which time I quit that band and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and whatever else was going on in 1984. So I sort of lost track of the guy. But a few years later, well, actually almost instantly, but I, I put it off because my mom had passed away, so I, I put my little project on hold. But it dawned on me after all this, you know, that was the perfect opportunity to get the answer to my question that I had formed you know, 15 years ago. How can you hate me when you don't even know me when I was 10 years old? Who better to ask than someone who would join an organization whose whole premise is hating those who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe? So I need to track that guy down and see about, you know, maybe interviewing the head of the Ku Klux Klan for the state of Maryland. Now, let me give you the hierarchy of the Klan. A state leader, which we would call a governor. In Klan terminology, that individual is known as a grand dragon. Anybody who is prefixed with the word grand means that individual is a state officer. So a grand dragon would be the highest state officer, like the governor. A grand caliph would be like a lieutenant governor. And uh, the highest, of course, what we call the president, who oversees all the states, uh, they call uh, their highest leader, the president, they call that person the imperial wizard. Anybody who is prefixed with the word imperial means that individual is a national officer. So imperial wizard would be like a president, an imperial caliph would be like a uh, vice president. And then within the state, you have counties. Uh, we would call the county leader a county executive. That individual is known as the great titan. Great designates county level. Within the uh, county, you have districts. Uh, we would call that person, well, they call the district a clavern. Um, they would, we would call that individual like a mayor, a councilman, uh, an alderman you know, who represents a certain district. They call that individual the exalted cyclops. And at every level, you know, they have secretaries, treasurers, and then below all that is just your rank and file clansmen and clanswomen. So anyway, a fellow named Roger Kelly was the uh, grand dragon for the state of Maryland. And I did not know him, but I, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna go around the country and interview Klan leaders and Klan members. There had been no books written by black authors on the Ku Klux Klan. Mine is the first. And um, I wanted the experience of sitting down face to face with these people, just like the white writers had done, and, and question them, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So I, uh, I decided to get in contact with that guy. I found the phone number, um, called it, it had been disconnected. You know, this was some you know, years later. 
And uh, I had to track him down. I tracked him down. He didn't have a phone, but he, he had moved. He had an apartment. So I stopped by his apartment one evening, unannounced, because I had no way of reaching him. So I knocked on the door, and he opens the door and says, Daryl, what are you doing here? And he steps out into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me. Well, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turned around, he came back in, he goes, what's going on, man? What, you know, are you still playing? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the Klan. And he went on to tell me that he had uh, since left the Klan. And um, I asked him, I said, well, where's your Robin Hood? And he says, well, they came and got it. I said, what do you mean they came and got it? Don't you own your Robin Hood? And he went on to explain to me, which I later found out to be true, that when you join, you know, you can purchase the Robin Hood and other stuff you know, outright, and it's yours to keep. But if you cannot afford it at that time, you can still take it, but you, but you put in a little extra money with your, do, with, you know, with your dues, you know, until you pay it off. Well, apparently he had not paid it off, and they came and repoed his Robin Hood. So, <laughs> at any rate, he said when they came to get it, he could not find the mask that, went, you know, that covered the face. And I said, let me see it. He went back, but he has since found it. So he went back down to his room or some room that was behind us and returned and handed me this mask. So I'm looking at this thing and he said, and I said to him, I said, do you know Roger Kelly? Yeah, I know Roger. Roger was my grand dragon. I said, well, listen, I want you to hook me up with, with, with uh, Mr. Kelly. I'm gonna write a book on the Klan and I wanna start with him, I wanna interview him. Oh, Daryl, I can't do that. I said, why not? He goes, well, we'll, we'll get in trouble. I said, well, you're not in the Klan anymore. He goes, no. Whether I'm in the Klan or not, I cannot take a black man to Roger Kelly. You know, Roger Kelly will kill you. And so I begged and pleaded with this guy to do it. He wouldn't do it. So I said, look here, you said that you need to return this mask. He said, yeah. I said, tell you what, give me Roger Kelly's phone number and address, and I'll take it to his house and return it for you. He snatched that thing right out of my hand and said, no way. And so I begged and pleaded some more. Finally, he consented to giving me Mr. Kelly's phone number and address on the, con on the condition that I not reveal to Mr. Kelly where I got his personal information. I said, okay. And he warned me again. He said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Roger Kelly will kill you. So I decided, you know, I'm still gonna pursue Roger Kelly. Well, I gave my secretary, who is white, and I only mention that, not that it matters to me, because I, I could care less what color somebody is, but it plays into my story. I gave her Roger Kelly's phone number, and I said, call this guy and tell him that you're working for somebody who's writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and giving your boss an interview? However, do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black, unless he asks. If he doesn't ask, don't allude to it. I figure, you know, if he didn't ask, he would figure that out when he sees me. So, and the reason why I wanted her to call is because I figured, you know, if I call, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black and say, I'm not talking to you, click, and then my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. But I knew that if she called, he would automatically know you know, the, the, this person on the other end of the, end of the phone line that he cannot see is a white person. And he would not automatically assume that this white woman is working for a black man, especially a black man who was writing a book on the Ku Klux Klan because they did not exist. 
So that might increase the odds of his agreeing to do the interview. And then of course, when he shows up and sees me, he can decide there and then if he wants to stay, leave, attack me, whatever he's gonna do. So she agreed, she called, he didn't ask what color I was, and he agreed to do the interview. So we set it up for 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon in the motel above the Silver Dollar Lounge. So Mary and I, we got there several hours in, in advance. I gave her some money, sent her down the hallway to get some soda pop out of the machine, fill up the ice bucket, put the soda on the ice, you know, get it all cold and stuff, so I would be able to be hospitable you know, when my, my guest arrived. I, I didn't know what he was gonna do, as I said, you know, when he saw me, you know, would he attack me? Would he come into the room and do the interview? Or would he just say, I'm not talking to you and walk away? In any event, I want to be hospitable and offer him a cold beverage. So had all the soda sitting over here getting cold. The way the room just happens to be, if you people are in the hallway and the door is here, you have to walk through the door, turn to your right, and the room is back here. So you cannot see who's in the room from the hallway because there's a wall here. So I took the lamp table, took the lamp off, put the table in the most obscure corner of the room, put a chair on one side for Mr. Kelly, a chair on this side for me. And I had a little bag beside me at the uh, base of my chair. I had a cassette player in there, which I pulled out and put on the table in hopes that, you know, that he would allow me to record the interview if he came in and sat down. And I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they claim uh, that the Bible preaches racial separation. So I want to be able to pull out my Bible and say, look, Mr. Kelly, show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. I also had some blank cassettes in there. So I'm all prepared, right? Right on time, 5.15. Knock, knock, knock on the door. Mary hops up and runs around the corner, opens the door. I'm seated back here where you cannot see me until you come in the room and turn the corner. She opens the door and in walks what is known as the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in clan terminology means bodyguard, security. Like an, he would be the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon. Uh, an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard to the Imperial Wizard. Well, anyway, so this Grand Nighthawk walks in. He's dressed in military camouflage fatigues got that Ku Klux Klan insignia, the red circle, white cross, and blood drop over here. Over here are the initials KKK, and on his little beret on his head is embroidered Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and right here in a holster, he had a semi-automatic handgun. He comes in, and Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind him in a dark blue suit and tie. And when the Nighthawk turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. Well, Mr. Kelly did not realize that his Nighthawk had stopped short. He bumped into his back and knocked him forward, and they stumbled around, had to regain their balance, and they were like looking all around the room like something's wrong. You know, well, I knew what was wrong. You know, they were thinking the desk clerk must have given them the wrong room number, or this was an ambush, because they were expecting a white guy there, not a black guy. So I realized that, and I stood up and I went like this to show I had nothing in my hands, and I approached him. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. The Nighthawk shook my hand. No problem, you know, so far so good. I said, come on in, come on in, have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down, and the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. And before I could sit down opposite them, Mr. Kelly says to me, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? I said, sure. 
and I gave him my driver's license. He looked at it and he says, oh, you live on such and such street in Silver Spring. Well, now that had me a little concerned. You know, why is he reciting my address? You know, I didn't need him to come, to my, come by my house and burn a cross or whatnot. Um, all he had to do was, you know, look at, my, look, look at my face, look at my picture, look at my name, and then give me back my license. Here he is calling off my street. I did not want to let him know that he had unnerved me a little bit, but I wanted to let him know, don't, you know, come to my house with any shenanigans. So I said to him, I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live, and you live at, and I recited his house number and his street. That way I was leveling the playing field, implying that, you know, if you come visit me, I might come visit you. So we're going to confine all this visiting to this motel room. So he nodded smiled like he understood what I was implying. I did not find out that day. It was many, many months later that I realized I had been presumptuous. One of Mr. Kelly's Klan members lived right down the road from my house, and I did not know that. So Mr. Kelly, when he would visit that guy, would have to travel down my street. So he just recognized the street. It was just pure coincidence, but I had no way of knowing that that particular day. Today, that same Klan member sits in a federal prison in the state of Maine for committing a hate crime. He'll be there for a while. So anyway, we got on with this interview, and uh, Mr. Kelly let me know that I was inferior, that black people have smaller brains than white people, and we're lazy, and we sell drugs and do all kinds of, you know, stereotypical things. And... Uh, I'm just sitting, you know, sitting there you know, listening to him because I'm trying to learn you know, where all this hatred and, and vitriol comes from. But every time he would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, I'd reach down and pull out my Bible, my King James Version of the Bible. And um, if my cassette you know, ran out of tape, I'd reach down and pull out a fresh cassette. Well, every time I reached like this, the Nighthawk would reach like this. And after a while, he realized there was no threat in the bag, and I went in and out of the bag. The Nighthawk didn't move. Well, a little over an hour or so into this interview, there was a strange noise in the room, kind of like, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made this noise. I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard a noise like that before, so I couldn't discern it. But I perceived it to be a threatening, ominous noise. And I hopped up out of my chair, hit the table, because I'm, I'm getting ready to come across that table and grab him and the Nighthawk because I felt that my life was in danger. And my eyes locked with Mr. Kelly's eyes. And I didn't, I didn't say a word. My eyes were speaking loud and clear. In fact, my eyes were shouting so loud he could hear my eyes. My eyes were clearly saying to him, what did you just do? Well. I'm thinking, you know, he, he did this because I didn't do it. His eyes had locked with mine. He didn't say a word. But I could read his eyes like telepathy or something. His eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun looking back and forth between both of us like, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary, she's over here sitting on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs. She realized what happened. The ice in the bucket next to her had begun melting and the cans of soda came cascading down the ice. That's what made the noise. 
and then it happened again, and we all began laughing. We all, yes, he's the imperial wizard, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, I mean, the grand dragon, he's, and uh, I'm a black guy. But yet we're in the same motel room, sitting at the same table, talking, agreeing, disagreeing, but now laughing at how ignorant we had been. This was a teaching moment. I won't say it was a learning moment. It was a teaching moment, though. And the lesson taught was this, all because some foreign, and highlight, circle, or underline the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, being the bucket of ice and cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of each other. The lesson taught is this, ignorance breeds fear. If we do not keep that fear in check, that fear in turn will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If we do not keep that hatred in check, that hatred in turn will breed destruction because we want to destroy those things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were just ignorant. So we saw the whole chain almost unravel to completion. Completion would have been had I pounced across the table and hurt one of them trying to protect myself and my secretary, or had the Nighthawk drawn his gun and shot somebody, namely me or my secretary, because it's his job to protect his boss and himself. So fortunately, it stopped short of, of the last of the final chapter. And um, like I said, we all began laughing and we carried on. There were no more problems. Nighthawk never reached his gun again. And I completed the interview. At the end, I thanked Mr. Kelly. He shook my hand. Nighthawk shook my hand, and Mr. Kelly gave me his clan card and said, keep in touch. And I'm thinking to myself, what? You know, I didn't come here to make friends with the clan. I came here to find out how you can hate me when you don't even know me. That's not what I said, but that's what I was thinking. And I said, okay, Mr. Kelly, I said, uh, I have a lot of other clan people around the country I need to interview, because I was gonna go up north, down south, midwest, west, interview different clan chapters. So I said, I will give you a call when the book is ready for publication. He said, okay, good luck, and they left. Mary and I packed up, headed back down 270 towards Silver Spring, and um, I said to her in my car, I said, you know, I rather like Roger Kelly. Her head almost hit the roof of my car. <laughs> and she goes, well, he doesn't like you. I said, yeah, I know. I said, but I like him. She goes, well, what do you like about him? I said, well, you know what? We have more in common than we do in contrast. Most of what we had in contrast Centered, how, centered around how we each felt about race. He felt his race was superior to my race. I felt my race was equal to his race because I believe there's only one race, the human race. And he felt that the races needed to be apart. I felt they could be together. Other than that, there were many things upon which we agreed, like better education for kids, get drugs off the street, you know, things like this. So. I said to her, I said, you know what? I am gonna keep in contact with Roger Kelly. Now, I interviewed many, many Klan leaders and members all across the country. I'm only, you know, and there were those who uh, would not talk to me. There were those who would talk to me. There were those who wanted to fight me. Um, I'm only gonna tell you about Roger Kelly today because that's all the time I have. But I would keep in contact with these people, especially if they were cooperative in, uh, in sitting down and talking with me. 
And uh, I, would, I would call Mr. Kelly and invite him out to my gigs. And he would come. He'd bring his Nighthawk, you know, and then you'd see him out on the dance floor dancing and carrying on. Um, I would invite him down to my house. You know, he lives about an hour and a half away. He'd drive down to my house with his Nighthawk. The Nighthawk would sit on my couch next to him. Sometimes the Nighthawk would get bored and pull out his gun and just twirl it on his finger while Mr. Kelly and I talked. And uh, sometimes I would invite over some of my black friends, some of my Jewish friends, some of my uh, other white friends, just to engage Mr. Kelly in conversation with someone other than me. I want him to have other perspectives. So this went on for two years. Mr. Kelly never invited me to his house. If I had to run an errand up you know, near where he lived, I'd call him and say, hey man, what are you doing? If he said nothing, I'd say, well, come run this errand with me. Okay, I'll meet you at wherever. He always wanted to meet me somewhere, like, like the parking ride off, off of a 270. Uh, he didn't want me to come to his house and pick him up or anything like that. So I'd go to this uh, meeting place. He and the Nighthawk would be there. And uh, the Nighthawk would get in my back seat, Mr. Kelly would get in my front seat, and we'd ride around Frederick County and do whatever it is I had to do, drop off a CD or a music contract or whatever. So this one, like I said, this one off a couple years. And um, we even had dinner and lunch at my table in my house, or we would go out and get something to eat. This is a man who felt he was superior to me. I was inferior. And uh, I said, this went on for a while. By the end of two years, Mr. Kelly was coming down to my house by himself. No Nighthawk. He trusted me that much. Shortly thereafter, he got promoted from Grand Dragon State Leader to Imperial Wizard National Leader. He began inviting me to his house. I'd go to his house. I would see his clan den where he'd have his meetings and things. I'd take some pictures, take some more notes from my book. And then he began inviting me to clan rallies. So I'd go to some of these clan rallies, and there'd be clansmen and clanswomen in these uh, robes and hoods with these torches. And there'd be a big, tall, 20 to 30 foot wooden cross, two beams that are tied together. And the cross is wrapped in burlap, which has been soaked in what they call clan cologne, which is actually diesel fuel or kerosene. And they parade around in a circle around this cross. And the Imperial Wizard and Grand Dragon, who are off to the side, will say, uh, Klansmen, halt. And they all stop. For God, and they raise their torch. For God, they repeat. For race, for race, for country, for country, and whatever else. And then he'll say, Klansmen, approach the cross. And they all circle in towards the, towards the uh, pole. Klansmen, light the cross and they throw their torches down at the, at the foot of the cross, and then whoosh, this thing shoots up in flames. And they give a lot of speeches and things like that, and then the rally is over. So I saw a bunch of these things, took some more notes, took some pictures, and um, CNN, they, they heard about this. They knew who I was through music. They knew who Roger Kelly was through the Klan and they wanted to do a story. So they reached out to me, I said, sure. They said, oh, when's the next time you're going to a Klan rally? I said, well, I'll let you know. So the opportunity came, I called CNN, I said, okay, I'm going to this Klan rally on Saturday, whatever the date was. And they said, uh, are you performing anywhere Friday night? I said, yes, I'm performing at this club down in Vienna, Virginia. 
So they wanted to come to the club and film me doing what I normally do, which is you know play music. So I gave them the, the contact at the club. They came. They got permission to come down there and film, and they did. And then Saturday morning, CNN came to my house, and they uh, you know followed me two hours up the road to this Klan rally, and they said to me, "Do you think?" Roger Kelly will even talk to us. I said, I'll do better than that. When the rally is over, I will get Roger Kelly, the imperial wizard of the Klan, to come back to my house, which is two hours away, and you can interview the head of the Ku Klux Klan inside a black man's house. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so they filmed the entire rally. And when Mr. Kelly, you know, when the rally was over, I, I went to Mr. Kelly, I told him what was going on, and I asked him, you know, will you, you, know, will you come back to my house and, and give CNN uh, an interview? He said, yeah. So he drove two hours out of his way, no Nighthawk, back to my house, sat in my basement at my home in Silver Spring, and interviewed with CNN. And this clip was shown every hour for 24 hours on CNN and on headline news, HLN, all over the world. And I want to show it to you right now, but I want you to pay particular attention to what Roger Kelly says. He says that even though he and I would do different things together, it did not change his views on the Klan, because his views on the Klan had been cemented in his mind for years. And then he goes on to say how he believes in separation of the races, because he finds that to be in the best interest of all races. But also listen to what he says at the end of the clip about respect. It's another teaching moment. And then listen to the two uh, CNN anchor desk people and their little commentary. When you first see the, uh, the Klan rally, You'll see, okay, Roger Kelly had become the uh, imperial wizard, so another guy became the grand dragon. You'll see the grand dragon in a, uh, in a white robe with uh, green adornments. The imperial wizard has a white robe with uh, blue adornments. You'll see the grand dragon bending over, uh, whispering something to me or talking, talking to me in my ear because it was so loud. Uh, I'll tell you about him after the clip. Okay. This is CNN. Welcome to this final hour of CNN Sunday Morning. I'm Bob Kane, and today for Miles O'Brien. Good morning to you all. I'm Joey Chen. Friendship can transcend all kinds of boundaries. Just look at us. And two men in Washington area are showing that even an African-American man and a member of the Ku Klux Klan can find common ground. CNN's Carl Rochelle reports. Carol Davis plays a hot piano. It's part of the show, and it makes him stand out. He also stands out here. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers out there. It's been a tough day for the Klan. Their Maryland rally found many local residents rejecting the message of white separatism. After it's over, Daryl Davis hangs around backstage with his friend, Klan wizard Roger Kelly. Huh? 
It's not unusual for blacks and whites to be friends, but it is unusual to find a black man and a Klan leader chatting pleasantly over an orange soda after a Klan rally. The relationship started over a book Davis was writing. His secretary set up an interview with Roger Kelly, but didn't tell him Davis was black. They talked and talked some more. Davis learning about the Klan, Kelly learning about Davis. We get to know one another and we do different things, you know. It's, it hasn't changed my views about the Klan, you know, because my views on the Klan has been pretty much cemented in my mind for years. Kelly and his Klan friends go to hear Davis and his band. And Davis goes to their rallies. I sat on, on, on the front row and, uh, and listened to each uh, Klansman speak. Um, some things I agreed with, other things I did not agree with. Davis thinks that his presence promotes badly needed understanding. Hate stems, I believe, from fear. From fear of the unknown. And I think this is all across the board, regardless of whether it's the Klansman or anything else. But he has no illusions about the Klan. If he did, his friend would be quick to disabuse them. And I believe in separation of the races. I believe that's in the best interest of all races. Does he really? Or has friendship transcended the color barrier? Listen to Kelly at a Klan rally. I'm a far out man to hell, I'm back, because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle, CNN Sunday Morning. Strange. Good adjective. Strange. Certainly that. Okay, so now you heard Mr. Kelly say that even though he and I would do different things together, it did not change his views on the Klan because his views on the Klan had been what? Cemented in his mind for years. And he went on to say how he believes in separation of the races because he finds that to be in the best interest of all races. However, towards the end of that clip, he said that he respected me. Did you all hear him say that? What's up with that? He's the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, and I'm a black guy. So he said, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him. Those were his words. If you don't take anything else home from this lecture today, take that home with you and apply it in your daily lives, all right? Very, very important. And you can use this you know, to, to navigate through society. Dialogue is the most important weapon we have to overcome aversion and, and, and adversarial situations, all right? <clears throat> it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about anything. You know, if you have an adversary, an opponent, somebody with an opposing point of view, Let's take race off the table. Abortion, global warming, the war in the Middle East, the current presidency, uh, nuclear weapons, whatever the hot topic of the day is, you're on one side, somebody else is on the other side. Give your opponent a platform. Allow them to air their views, if you, regardless of how extreme they may be. And trust me, at some of the rallies I've been to, I went to a rally a few months ago out in Missouri. At some of the rallies I've been to, I hear things so extreme, they cut you to the bone. But give that person a platform. Allow them to air their views. If you agree with them, fine, no problem. If you don't agree with them, that's fine too. 
you challenge them, but you do it politely and intelligently, not rudely and violently. You say, look, I need more clarification. Give me more explanation as to why you think I should believe the way you do. Help, help me understand. When you do things that way, there is an excellent chance that they will reciprocate and give you a platform to explain your point of view. Make sure you've done your homework so you have all your facts together and you can spread, uh, give your point of view in an intelligent and influential manner. Because at the end of the day, you each have to think about what the other person said. And if somebody says something to you that just makes a little spark, you know, you begin thinking, hmm, you know, she does have a point there. And you, and you will begin to lean in that direction because we all want to be right. We don't want to be wrong. So understand something. I did not respect what Mr. Kelly had to say. I am not a racist. I'm not a separatist. I'm not a nationalist. I'm not a supremacist. I'm not an alt-right. I'm not a whatever. I did not respect what he had to say. However, I respected his right to say it. And this is the kind of dialogue that we would have. Even after my book came out, we would still get together and go out and have dinner, things like that. Sometimes we would talk about the Klan, other times we talk about other things, latest James Bond movie or you know, whatever. And um, we would talk and listen to each other. Over time, that cement that held his ideology together in his mind that he talked about began to get cracks in it. And then over a little more time, it began to crumble and fell apart. And then just a few years back, Roger Kelly decided he no longer believed in what he said on that video clip, and he quit the Ku Klux Klan. Today, he's no longer in the Klan and no longer believes in that. And when he quit, he gave me his robe and hood. This is the robe of the Imperial Wizard, the same robe that you saw him wearing in that video clip. This is the symbol I was telling you about. It's called a myoak or a blood drop symbol. Uh, the red circle, white cross, and red blood drop in the center. And uh, a white cotton robe with a blue cape, blue stripes, and a blue sash. Uh, or you can have purple, it's your choice. But blue or purple are the imperial colors. If you don't like cotton, you can get a full blue satin robe or a uh, full purple satin robe. It's, again, that's, that's your choice. This, of course, is the, uh, the hood. They also call it a helmet. This is the hood and this is the mask. Members who want anonymity, they don't want you to know who they are. They wear this mask and peep at you through these eyelets so they can see you, but you can't see them. If they don't care that you know who they are, the mask has three snaps or Velcro, just unsnap it, pull it off, and the face is exposed under the hood. And you saw both types uh, right there in that, in that video. Uh, green would be the uh, Grand Dragon color. The guy that you saw talking to me when you first saw the clip leaning over and talking to me, that was the Grand Dragon. And um, this is 
his road. As you see, it has a green cape, green stripes, and um, of course it's got the patch and the green sash. Over here on this side, he has a dragon patch. Under the cape is another dragon patch. Today, this evening, I'm going to his surprise birthday party. <laughs> and uh, he, when I first met him, um, he's a mechanic. And I needed some stuff done. So I asked him if he would do it for me, and I'd pay him. And he agreed. He would not let me in his house. Now I go in and out of his house. His daughter married a black guy, and they live in his house. All right. Here is an example of a, this is another Grand Dragon's robe. He preferred um, satin. So he wears. He wears two of these uh, blood drop emblems, my oaks. Got his American flag, Confederate flag. There's no difference between this robe and the cotton one. It's comes from a different clan group. This grand dragon prefers satin. He, his name, Robert White. When I was a teenager, my late teens, I was listen, listening to WTOP radio, and I heard that the Grand Dragon had been arrested and charged with conspiring to bomb a synagogue up in Baltimore on Liberty Road, Robert White. And uh, he, after, at his hearing, he went to prison for uh, four years. He ran the Klan while he was in the prison. And then he got out, continued running the Klan, Later in my adulthood, he got busted again. Assault with intent to murder two black men with a shotgun over in Woodlawn, right off Security Boulevard, right, just right outside of Baltimore. This time he, got, he went to prison for three years and continued running the Klan from within the prison. I'll make a long story short, I want to interview him. So um, I wrote him some letters. And when he got out, this man was vehemently racist and violent and dangerous. Uh, he did not know I was black initially. And then, you know, he found out, somebody told him, you know, he had one of his clan people on the outside come check me out, unbeknownst to me, and get back to him. So he was all furious, you know, that I had not told him, but I calmed him down. And when he got out, he called me, and we got together. And we got, we got together many times. And over time, he began shedding that ideology it's about dialogue, it's about talking, it's about getting to know one another. This man, you know, you know, as a Klan leader, you don't make a lot of money. It's, it's simply a title. You have to have a regular job. So, and, you know, you get maybe a small stipend out of the dues, you know, being a Klan leader, but not enough money to pay your mortgage or things like that unless you are embezzling Klan funds, which happens quite a bit, which is why you have all these splinter groups, people break away and things like that. His day job, before he got busted, was Baltimore City police officer. He was not an undercover cop in the Klan. 
He was a bona fide Klansman on the Baltimore City Police Force. And there were plenty of other ones. He went on to become one of my very best friends, which is why he gave me his robe and his police uniform so I could go around and um, bring them to different lectures that I do. Now, it bothers me a great deal as an American that we call ourselves the greatest nation on the face of this earth. Don't get me wrong, I'm patriotic, I love my country, but I have some issues with our bragging about certain things and not living up to them. Perhaps technologically, we are the greatest. We have the ability here in this country, we created the ability here in this country to put a man on the moon. Nobody else, we did it. And while Neil Armstrong is up there walking around on the moon, talking about one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, we can talk to him live from right here on Earth all the way to the moon via satellite radio phone. We invented that technology. Everybody in here has a cell phone. Everybody in here has email. Hit a few numbers, hit a few words, hit send, and you're talking to people right next door in Virginia, DC, California, Australia, Africa, China, anywhere on the face of this earth. How is it that we as Americans can talk to people as far away as the moon or anywhere on the face of this earth, but yet some of us have difficulty talking to the person who lives right next door because he or she is a different color, a different persuasion, a different religion, a different whatever. It seems to me that before we can call ourselves the greatest, our ideology needs to catch up to our technology. And when we get them both up there, we can truly brag about how great we truly are. Folks, this is the 21st century. See that stuff? It does not belong in the 21st century, let alone any century, really. We are living in space age times, but there's still too many of us thinking with stone age minds. And what did I say I majored in? Music, I'm a musician. I'm not a sociologist or psychologist. Maybe I should have been, I'm making more money than I do playing music. But I'm just a rock and roll piano player. And if I can walk in and sit down and talk with somebody and walk away with things like that over time, any of us can do it. We need to stop talking about each other. We need to stop talking at each other. And we need to start talking with each other. Invite your adversaries to the table so you can understand them and they can understand you. That's how things get accomplished not by living in an echo chamber where everything you say is reflected back to you by everybody who agrees. That's called preaching to the choir, all right? You don't accomplish anything that way. You accomplish things by bringing in someone from the outside and having a conversation with them. One of the things that, I, that happened to me that you might find interesting um, was this. People ask me, yeah, or, or, you know, why, why do they burn the cross? You know, if they're, if they're a, a Christian organization, why do they, you know, set the cross on fire and all that stuff? Well, I had this exalted cyclops in my car one day, you know, a, a district leader. And um, we were driving along. He's over here. And I, I heard all his answers before, not, not, not by him, but uh, other Klan people. 
And I said, well, look, man, you know, if you're a Christian, why, why are you burning up the cross? He says, well, Daryl, the fire serves two purposes. I said, what? He says, well, fire is a purifier. And then he goes on to ask me if um, I ever got a splinter in my finger when I was a kid, and did my mom take a needle and heat it up in the stove or whatever and then dig it out? I said, yeah. And he says, well, she was purifying the tip of the needle by putting it into the flame. I said, I understand that. And he says, okay. And the second reason is because we are Christian, we are lighting the way for Jesus Christ. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, you obviously have a different Jesus Christ than I do. He goes, no, Daryl, there's only one Jesus Christ. I said, no, there are two Jesus Christ. He goes, no, there's one. I said, no, there are two. He, said, he says, well, what, is your Jesus Christ black or something? I said, well, no, he's not black, but he's not white either. He, he looks at me kind of strange. And he says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the area in which Jesus Christ appeared, I've been there before, and he appeared as one of those people. And I said, the people there are olive-complected. So if anything, he was most likely olive-complected. And he says, well, what's your point? I said, my point is, you have a different Jesus Christ than I have. And he says, well, how do you figure? I said, because you said that you were lighting the way for Jesus Christ. He says, yeah, we are. And if you were Christian, you know that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And I said, yes, I know that. But here's the difference. You have to light the way for your Jesus Christ. My Jesus Christ lights the way for me. And he got very quiet. And then I said, who are you to light the way for Jesus Christ? He'd never heard that analogy before. He just accepted all the brainwashing that he had been inundated with. He got very quiet, but I could tell his wheels were spinning. And he didn't say anything for a couple minutes. And then he changed the subject. Five months later, he quit the Klan based on that conversation. He realized he had been duped. His robe was the first robe I ever received. Now, the two CNN anchor people, they implied that I was strange. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. If being, if being strange gets people to give up stuff like that, we all should be strange, okay? Now, I don't recall what song I was playing on the keyboard back in 1983 that caused the, uh, the Klansman to get up from his table and put his arm around my shoulder and, and you know, bring up Jerry Lee Lewis and all that stuff. But I do recall the style. And I'll give you a quick demonstration of it right now, and then I'll take some questions.